This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honors the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. My name is Stephen Porzio. My name's Andrew Carroll. Today we are talking about the empty man himself, James Badge Dale. Andrew, run down his history. James Badge Dale was born in New York in 1978. At 10, he was cast in Lord of the Flies. And he did not act again until he guest starred, as all actors must, on an episode of Law & Order Special Victims Unit in 2002. His big break came in 2006 with his role as state trooper Brannigan in Martin Scorsese's The Departed. In 2010, he played one of the three leads in HBO's The Pacific, as well as the lead in the NBC conspiracy thriller series Rubicon. Since 2010, he has found steady work in thrillers as Grizzled Cops, Crooked Cops, Ex-Cops, Security Specialists, CIA Contractors, Soldiers and Sheriffs. His most successful films uh, during this period were Iron Man 3 and World War Z. Dale has developed a reliable reputation for portraying masculine yet vulnerable men in the likes of 13 Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi, The Standoff at Sparrow Creek and All the Dark. His latest roles include the traumatised cypher James Lasombra in The Cold Horror of the Empty Man and Detective Ray Abruzzo in the TV series Hightown. Yeah, I feel like me and you are the biggest James Badgerdale fans alive, and uh, I know I've been following his career for quite some time, but I was wondering if you had any uh, general thoughts on Dale before we get into him? He's just very good at playing that specific kind of, you know, wounded alcoholic cop who still has a six-pack and runs eight miles a day. Yeah, I, I kind of clarify it as kind of intelligent action man, like... Yeah, yeah. He's not like when Jason Statham plays a scientist, and I love Jason Statham, but it yeah. takes you out of the movie a little bit. Like it would. Yeah, yeah. Whereas I just buy Dale automatically as the scientist who gets thrown into a war film in like Spectral or the cop who has, is investigating this like very dense, you know, web of deceit. But it's often like with talking, not with brute force. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is really interesting. And then also, like, I, I first noticed him in Flight, the movie, that like, he has this one scene as the character of Gaunt Young Man. Mm. And he's this like, terminally ill cancer patient with a shaved head who Denzel Washington's pilot meets in the smoking area of a hospital after surviving a plane crash. And he just, Dale just delivers this incredible monologue about God and about how we spend all our time trying to exert control over our lives, whereas life is just so much easier if you accept that God is in control. And he's like, God gave me cancer. I have no control over it. And it's the best scene in the movie. And he's in it for like four minutes. And you just you just leave being like, what's up? What's that guy's deal? Like, you'd rather watch a movie about that person. So I've just followed his career since then. And I, I think like Christopher Abbott, I find him synonymous with just great indie genre flicks from rising auteurs. Like, I think four out of the five movies I watched uh, were from debut directors. And they're all excellent. So it's, it's just great that he works with so many rising talents. Uh, I wish more actors would uh, do the same. Yeah, absolutely. I covered the other end of the scale where he works with big budget directors. That's good too. I, I have one of them. We can talk about it first. The Departed. Yeah, The Departed. The Departed. Yeah. Do you want to run down the plot as, as complicated as it is? I'll do my best. So just uh, in terms of James Baddale, he plays um, State Trooper Brannigan, who's the best friend and uh, a fellow police officer to Sergeant Colin Sullivan, who's played by Matt Damon. Colin Sullivan is actually a mole placed in the Massachusetts State Police by gang kingpin Frank Costello, who's played by Jack Nicholson. And now the Massachusetts State Police have also placed a mole, uh, Billy Costigan, into uh, Frank Costello's gang. And he's played by Leonardo DiCaprio. Both Matt Damon and DiCaprio have to find out who the mole is in their separate organisations. Yeah, just a, a totally demented wild movie. Even that, like, it gets Insane. even more complicated yeah. than that. 
you, you know, certain people are actually moles for other organizations and that there's more than one mole uh, or yeah. could be at 1.3 moles. <laughs> it's crazy. I just forgot how crazy this movie is. And like just having like savored Scorsese's Netflix series, Pretended City, where the whole show, he's just literally laughing at Franley Woods's jokes. And then just after Irishman, which is so elegiac and Silence, which is this like religious epic, um, you, you can forget that Scorsese is like the person who made The Departed and The Wolf of Wall Street just too... Yeah. Insane yeah. movies, and particularly The Departed, though, because it's so over, not only so overblown. I think the word "fuck" is said two hundred thirty-eight times. I saw on IMDb, and Jack Nicholson essentially plays the devil. But um, <laughs> it's also a remake of a Hong Kong movie, which aren't known to be too chill either. So, just yeah. I think putting all of them together is just like a volatile cocktail. You know? Yeah. What What do you think of the movie as a whole? I really liked it. Yeah, I think when it, when you compare it to a movie like um, Black Mass, which I covered for. Um, Jesse Plemons, I think it's um, it just shows you how much better Scorsese is than his many many imitators. Um, not that Black Mass is bad or that um, the director that is bad, um, but I do think like there's a, there is only one Marty, and uh, the depart the Departed is one of those movies that shows that shows that because they're both this similar material. They're both kind of inspired by or, or based on like the Winter Hill Gang, which is um, Whitey Bulger. Whitey Bulger. Yeah. Um, and um, this manages to do to make its villains scary without having to layer cake them in prosthetics or tons of makeup. There's so many good performances in this movie. <laughs> there really so is. It's, it's impossible to pick one. Alex just, Baldwin, <laughs> so yeah, good. Exactly, yeah, it's just the bit where he's like um, rapid fire machine gun talking to Matt Damon, where he's like, "You coming out for a smoke? Ah, you don't smoke. Fuck, go fuck yourself." Anyway, <laughs> yeah. He says so much more than that, but that's all I caught. Oh, or Mark Wahlberg, where your man's like, who the fuck are you? And he's like, I'm the guy that does the job. You must be the other guy. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, I just think it's, it's down to Scorsese that this movie works because William Monaghan's screenplay is so loud and brassy and so unruly and always feels like it could tip over into incoherence because there's just so many threads and twists. And But I think he, Scorsese just manages to keep all the tension bottled. Like, it's hysterically funny, <laughs> even when it's horrifying. There's that scene where, you know, Jack Nicholson's talking to DiCaprio and he's like, to DiCaprio, like, you think you could be me? And he's like, I could be you, but I don't want to be you. And Jack Nicholson's like, ah, kind of heavy as the crown kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so good. I think all the characters have a lot more depth than you would typically expect in movies like this, particularly like Black Mass, as you said. I think it's a little over-edited, The Departed. Like, I think at times it could chill out a little bit. But there's, yeah. a couple of, there's a couple of scene compositions and shots in this that I just think are like Scorsese's like most ambitious and weird ever. Like the scene where it's like the religious painting and it looks like it's floating and it just smashes on the guy's head. <laughs> or um, the whole alleyway chase between DiCaprio and Damon where it's all reflected mm. surfaces. And it's the yeah, time the movie yeah. feels like the most sort of Asian influenced. Like yeah, it looks yeah, like yeah. almost like a John Woo movie or something. It's, <laughs> it's really cool. Um, yeah. What do, you, what do you think of Dale's performance? Well, he's basically a background character for almost the entire film who barely says anything. Uh, and now he gets he gets a big payoff towards the end of the film, which I'll do my best not to spoil here. Um, but I think he's one of the few non-Bostonians in the movie who kind of gets away with the accent in it because he has just because he has so little to say. Whereas like people like Ray Winstone are really struggle with it. Um, like you're watching you're watching him try to talk through a Boston accent and it's like oh god. 
They should but just it, let him be English. It works because his character is called French, and you're like, what is that? <laughs> Where's yeah, this yeah, person yeah. from? Also, you... uh, he shoots himself in the head right before he realizes he's gonna blow up. Mad. Fuck it. Yeah. And Jack Nicholson, who just doesn't try at a Boston accent, like okay, there might be the occasional dropped or or extended vowel, but other than that, he's just like, ah, fuck it, I'm just gonna be evil, um, and that'll be enough. And it is. I think Dale's ultimate role is like um, it's part of a twist that I, I won't spoil but it basically comes out of nowhere and he's basically one of the last people you suspect of, the, you suspect of um, being capable of what he does in the movie just because he's he's essentially a blown up extra for most of the film he's just kind of there in the background I think it's a small role but he's around for a lot of the movie because you know he's Damon's kind of seemingly unassuming friend and he carries himself like a, a cop like as you said I think his Boston accent's pretty good he has one or two funny lines in which he, he comments on Damon's like rapid rise as a cop and seemingly not realising that it's like because he's a bent copper as they say in Line of Duty you know like it's his ascent has been kind of orchestrated by these criminal forces but I think he kind of epitomises the thing you see in Scorsese movies, you know, he's, like, an interesting face in the background. Like, he's textured. A bit like Jesse Plemons in The Irishman. Like, yeah. he might not have a lot to do, but he, he just brings a certain kind of aura. But I don't think that twist works if you don't have an actor as, you know, strong as Dale, who mm-hmm. registers in viewers' heads as they're watching, but, but as I said, just kind of feels like, you know, just a background detail. Mm-hmm. And, you know, while that twist could be very left field, I think it works because the movie has established that, you know, no one can be trusted and because you have a good actor in that part. And it's I always think good twists should be surprising but inevitable. And by casting Dale in this part, I think that the Departed twist feels like that. Yeah, you know what I, I mean? agree. Can I talk about Little Woods? Go for it. Hey, you've been talking to the guys about me. What? Like how much I admire you? No. You know what I mean? No, of course not. I've had some new guys ask me, and then Bill's been on my ass, so... Bill? Oh, shit. You're getting me. No, I'm not. Yeah? You'd make a killing. My charge is much more than you used to. Yeah, I heard. So you're going Come talk to me. Why don't you help your kid and my sister instead? Yes, yeah, so Little Woods is this great crime thriller from Nia DaCosta, who has made the new Candyman, which I know you're very excited for. I'm doubly excited for it after seeing this debut of hers um, in the film. Tessa Thompson plays a woman named Ollie on probation after being caught smuggling drugs across the border between Canada and uh, North Dakota. Uh, she was doing it to take care of her dying adoptive mother, getting her the medication she needs while dealing stuff like Oxycontin on the side to cover them financially. But um, after her mother's death, Ollie's trying to stay on the straight and narrow. You know, she has a pearl off played by Lance Reddick um, that said she's about to lose her mom's home and then when Ollie's sister Deb who's played by Lily James comes to her and tells her that she's pregnant um, at this stage her sister already has a kid and is separated from her partner who's played by Dale and is living in a caravan Ollie decides that over a week she's going to get back into the crime game raise enough kind of cash to buy back her house for her sister before leaving the town of Littlewoods for good and going like clean like leaving the crime game and um yeah one level it's just this very tense crime thriller that gives ollie a defined goal but really just stacks the deck up against her and deb so that the quest to get it is just really tense and exciting and i haven't even mentioned there's this uh, actor luke kirby who plays this really menacing drug dealer in little woods who threatens ollie before forming like this uneasy alliance with them a lot of great characters and actors in the movie 
But on the other hand, it's also this portrait of uh, that kind of like rural American town where everybody is poor and living hand to mouth. There's an opioid crisis and the institutions, you know, like the police, the healthcare system, the banks don't seem to care. And while these problems affect all the working class residents in the area, this movie's about how women like Aline Deb also suffer in this uncaring, but also patriarchal society. Like, they're particularly impacted. You know, like, Ollie in the movie is constantly hit on by all these sleazy dudes and dead. Meanwhile, cannot afford either to ha- just have a baby because she doesn't have insurance or travel nearly 100 miles for a legal, yet still expensive American abortion. But just on dead, like, his character Ian is quite interesting because he-, he manages to feel partly like another antagonist, but also partly like a very sympathetic figure. He's on one level, he's playing this drunken, deadbeat father who Deb can't rely on. And, like, in one scene, he meets up with Deb and his son after Deb asks him for money and he's around his kid and is drunk when Deb calls him out on it he calls her a bad mom and just starts like flinging like wads of cash at her <laughs> but it, while his character could be just this stereotypical kind of like asshole distant father everyone in the woods has a little bit more depth like the movie never explains what happens to Ian but it's pretty clear he's just one of another person in this town who's just slipped through the cracks and maybe turned to crime Ollie goes to him when she wants to go back into selling drugs for context because he seems to just know everybody yeah and you know he lives in this homeless shelter and he seems generally remorseful for some of the asshole things he does and you get a sense of him just wanting to be better but just can't get out of his own way Mm, and yeah. he's kind of he's kind of transformative in the part because he's this you know I think Dale's a really handsome guy uh, but he's playing this person who's got addiction issues someone who's lived a hard life he's got like the bags under his eyes the mangy hair I don't know how they did his hair he's got the mumbly voice you know he often seems sick he's coughing a lot uh, but he's also sometimes charming like there's this bit where Deb goes to visit him at the shelter and she's being sort of standoffish because she has some bad news to tell him and he's like can you sit next to me I promise I'll just hold your hand. And he's really like nice in the scene and he said yeah. and he and a bit of his natural hotness comes out and you start to buy like <laughs> why James's character fell for him in the first place and sort of still gravitates towards him despite maybe her better judgment. Um so I think again, like he's he's mostly adding a bit of grit to this like unvarnished look at rural life, but he gets one great scene. Um it's actually in that scene where he's being very charming at first, because after that Deb tells him she's gonna have an abortion. Um, and you th- and it's his kid and you think he's going to blow his top and freak out but instead he goes kind of more quiet and intense and he says that like you know he can get her the cash for food and clothes you know to keep it and she says like it's it's more than that like, I, I can't depend on you and he then offers to marry her and in the scene he just goes from like a flash of anger to desperation where he's offering all these things to acceptance and it just ends with him like quietly weeping in her lap so saying like over and over again like i can do better yeah. and it's just it's really heartbreaking and it's it's just another example of what's great about the movie in that everything and everyone is just a little bit more complex than you you might expect at first yeah do you want to hit 13 hours yeah salam libyan visa it's official libyan government Finney? Hmm? Finney? Pull over for inspection. No. Pull over for inspection. Sorry, sir, I can't do that. Look up. Go ahead, look up. You see the drone? No? That's all right, because the drone sees you. Sees your face. We know who you are. Anything happens to us, your home, your family, gone. Give the order to let us through. I want the car! No, I'm not gonna do that. Look, I earn right to decide the future of my country. Talk to the wrong guy. How willing are you to die for your country? I'm gonna go right here, right now. 
13 hours, the secret soldiers of Benghazi. Dale plays Tyrone S. Woods, known as Roan to his friends, a former U.S. Navy SEAL and current Global Response, or GRS, staff member, and CIA contractor at the Benghazi CIA Annex in Libya. Uh, so this is based on a real, a true event uh, in 2012 on September 11th when the U.S. Embassy uh, was attacked by Libyan rebels um, and the ambassador was killed and it's about the six... Uh, GRS staff, including uh, James Batchdale, and then there's a, uh, Jack Silva is the main character. He's played by John Krasinski, Jim from The Office of All People, D- director of A Quiet um, Place. Yeah, uh, which really ruins the movie. Um, <laughs> there's Pablo Pornstash Schreiber as uh, a character called Tonto, presumably because he's the lone ex-ranger of the team. Uh, which I thought was pretty clever. Yeah, um, I like it. I, th- I think that's why they call it, but I'm not sure if these characters are smart enough to come up with that on their own. <laughs> anyway, and then there's three other guys who... Who knows who these guys are? They're just there to be hairy and big and tough and, you know, make carrying machine guns look very easy. But yeah, it's maybe the most hoorah American propaganda film of modern times outside of, like, Acts of Valor, which actually starred US Navy SEALs. And it's a pretty good time if you're if you're willing to like separate really shitty politics from the from the art and which is impossible anyway um, before the academics come for me, um, and it's it's definitely one of Michael Bay's most mature films, and I think what's good about this is that Dale is basically a co-lead, um, and I think I would I I would have preferred him as as the as the lead uh, compared to fucking Jim from The Office. I have, a, I have a big chip on my shoulder about uh, John Krasinski. Well, look, just I'll take a minute there. I just watched A Quiet Place Part 2 in the cinema. It's not very good. It's, it's very formulaic and just like a bunch of action set pieces strung together and it doesn't have an ending. And I, I'm amazed that it's getting so many good reviews. The first one was great, though. So I'm, I'm down to kind of take Krasinski down a peg yeah. or two. Well, we've been deprived of quality content on the big screen for so long. We've been just deprived of the big screen for so long that people just take any old shit, I think. Um... Um, say what you will about Michael Bay in when it comes to like military action. There's there are a few better that can actually shoot it um, well, and especially now that none of the cars are turning into alien robots or none of the tanks are like are Decepticons in disguise. And I think it's a, a film that's quite thrilling despite its right wing propaganda bent, and because we're never really sure who the bad guys are. There is no real villain other than the CIA director of the annex in Libya, who's just called Bob. And there's a great there's a great scene where James there, James Badgedale is working out by dragging a tire a massive like tractor tractor tire behind him and he's just like arr, arr. And the director's like shut up <laughs> it's really funny a lot of this is kind of undercut by how right wing propaganda it is because there's a there's a scene where they're all like working out doing pull ups lifting weights doing push ups and you see that Pablo Schreiber has a has a tattoo on his rib cage that's meant to be like the spear wound that Jesus that Jesus Christ got on the cross when the Romans <laughs> stuck him, but it's bleeding the American flag. It's insane. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, I think I, I think I would recommend this movie to people, and yeah. um, just for how like bizarrely stupid it is. Like like you look at the screen, and you're like, who could take this seriously? Uh, outside of like an American an American retired Marine sergeant, you know. Yeah, I think my issue with it because I haven't seen this movie in years, but I remember quite enjoying it when I thought Michael Bay was applying his sort of 
glossy sheen to these kind of airier scenes where he's just watching these sort of like all like regular American you know dude heroes just kind of like hanging out and like lifting weights and like you see yeah. them like watching Tropic Thunder. I thought all that <laughs> stuff was very well observed, and then I yeah, think I when too, it gets yeah. into the sort of chaotic action, I it was I found it very like frenzied. And there's even there's a bit I remember where a camera goes into a missile and then the missile shoots across the city. <laughs> it's like this is just like bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I think it's quite repetitive as well because yeah. most of the movie they're just defending a wall, and I think the bit, the bit where Pablo Schreiber and this really muscle gown but muscle bound but also philosophical guy um, are watching Tropic Thunder and they're both they beat for beat get the I'm a dude dressed as a dude disguised as another dude kind of bit is uh, is really funny and then there's another bit where James Badgedale is like the philosoph- philosophical uh, hench soldier is reading like a book and um, James Badgedale passes him by he's like. Hit me with it. And he goes, all the gods, devils, heavens, and hells are within you. And James Bradshaw is like, hmm, leave it with me. <laughs> God, I'm going to rewatch it. Yeah. I think, you, no, you, I think you, you swung me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a two and a half hour propaganda movie. Um, so what, what more could you ask for? It's never stopped me before. Yeah, um, exactly. I will say, I do think uh, James Bajel, the same year as 13 Hours, was in a better war movie called Spectral. Mm. At first, our field tech wrote it off as interference. I don't think you're going to fly me all the way out here for interference. In the last few weeks, we've been finding bodies around the city that were killed in the same way. Look, we work to keep our guys safe, and they need your help. They're going to get you close to this thing. It's going to be up to you to figure out how to stop this. What the? Take the shot. Did you see that? The bullets went right through it. Tell you to pull out right now. All units evacuate now! There! Come on! We're ready to go! Is there anything that explains what you saw? No. And uh, I won't spend too long on this because uh, now Castle talked about it in some depth in our free screen one episode. Uh, I actually went and watched it immediately after that episode and can <laughs> confirm it is good. For those who don't know, uh, James Badger plays Klein, a DARPA scientist who is called to the front lines of the war in Moldova. The US are involved in. Basically, he developed a line of these hyperspectral imaging goggles that can help people see in the dark that were used by troops there. But when he arrives in Moldova, he is shown by Greenwood's uh, general footage capturing all soldiers' goggles of a mysterious translucent humanoid apparition that kills people upon touch and basically when Klein and a group of soldiers that go into the field to investigate this they get cut off from their base and they have to defend themselves against hundreds of these apparitions while Klein is trying to figure out what they are and this went straight to Netflix in 2016 uh, at a time when that wasn't as prestigious as it was now that, that mm. so I think it got a little slapped on which is unfair because the movie cost around uh, 70 million dollars to make it looks better than a lot of blockbusters now it's, it's this cool genre hybrid because while it is a sci-fi and it has this fantastical premise and although it's not said it, it is centered in a real scientific concept and actually I think takes it a bit more seriously than other Hollywood blockbusters tend to do yeah. but essentially it just follows the beats of a war movie and you know because of that it's quite scare, sparse on character detail like Dale's character client is the only character who's even just a little bit of backstory and it's basically just one scene like in the opening scene we see him like rifling through junkyards looking for parts for his machine so we know he's not afraid to get his hands dirty and then you know we see him show off this prototype of device this uh, laser that can heat things up really fast that's developed to 
boil the enemy's water supply really fast so you can drive them out of a you know military zone and he's showing it to all these suits and they're like have you tried it on living things and dale's really annoyed and he's uh, he's like sarcastically ask any volunteers that's another thing i like about this movie is that it's it's about the importance of intelligence you know and rational thought and science uh, especially when the continued use of brute force is failing and the movie's very cynical about amazing scientific developments being turned into instruments of death and um, but aside from that introduction of death, it's really just about a bunch of people thrown into this Black Hawk Down style battle while this mystery of what these monsters are propels the narrative forward. And I just think approaching this fantastical premise from such a grounded perspective, both in terms of the science and the genre, is it's just a really cool mix and it's very exciting. And I think because this movie, which was conceived as a blockbuster, is aiming to be more grounded and authentic, I think it works casting a character like Dale, a character actor like Dale in the lead. Because as I said before, I think Dale just reads as intelligent on screen. So when he's spouting all this sci-fi jargon, I believe him. But yeah. also when he gets thrown into the shit and has to not only hold his own amongst all these hardened soldiers, but get them to listen and to respect him. I buy that too, because he's played tons of action men. Like, you know, it's the same year as he's in this roided up, you know, yeah. 13 hours movie. <laughs> but Spectral is certainly the, um, I think the better war movie of the two. And I hope can people continue to discover it on Netflix. Cause I've already seen articles reclaiming it as a cult underrated movie which seems to happen a lot to dale movies because um i feel like we've done that with hold the dark and then yeah. i um, the empty man is yeah. uh the transition from that being considered like this critic bomb to being like oh no it's actually one of the best horror movies the last couple of years is it will happen really fast you know yeah yeah do you want to talk about hold the dark sure you want magazine uh it's full please check Listen to me now. You're gonna stay behind this rock. His weapon cannot get through this rock. You stay here. You understand? Uh, yes. I'm gonna make a run for the house. The very second I go on you, you unload at that window and you do not stop until I reach the house. Okay. What will you do? Uh, uh, stay here and. Window, window. The second I run. Uh, yes. I'll do it. I'll do it. So, James Badgedale plays Police Chief Donald Merriam, a beleaguered cop in the Alaskan wilderness uh, in who is investigating multiple child disappearances and hunting Vernon Sloan, Alexander Skarsgård, the psychopathic father of one of the missing children. That's the plot I wish Hold the Dark had. Um, uh, instead, it's actually fo mostly focused on Russell Core, a wolf uh, expert who is called to Alaska by Medora Sloan because her son has gone missing and... James Badgell gets involved maybe about say a quarter of the way into the movie and is um, basically when Vernon Sloan, uh, Skarsgård's character, comes back from Iraq to find his son missing and his wife crazy. And um, Russell Core is just this poor in interloper caught in the middle of it all. And I I've said this before, but a lot of the themes of this movie don't really work or make sense. And I think there is a better film in there that streams streamlines itself by just kind of cutting out Russell Core. No offense to Jeffrey Wright. I'm kind of focusing on a more cat and mouse game between Donald and Vernon with uh, Medora caught in the middle. Still, man can dream. Uh, I think just on Dale, I think he's the only kind of grounded character in the film because everyone else in this movie is a complete fucking weirdo or psychopath. Um, like even uh, Russell Core is like a bit odd, frankly. <laughs> and like he he has a stable home life, he has a steady job, he has a loving and pregnant wife. And spoiler alert, that's why he has to die. 
because no normal or sane man could survive the events of Hold the Dark. Now he does he does instigate the best joke of the movie where um, he's like, um, oh yeah, Russell Corr is here to answer uh, answer any questions you might have. He found your son's body, and uh, Alexander Skarsgård goes, "Do you raise the dead?" <laughs> and Russell Corr goes, "No." Then I have no questions. <laughs> um, and he get, he gets the best action scene in the movie. You know the one where the Native American man um, so good. You know, bolts and bolts a massive military machine gun to the floor and just massacres all these cops. And James Badgedale is the only one capable of taking him down. Um, he's just one of those um, characters who you can tell are like very idealistic. And even if you don't, even if he never says anything about it, you can tell he's like idealistic and optimistic um, about the future. Maybe just because he's got a loving wife and a baby on the way. Um, and it's 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 weird to see in like a movie that is so focused on. Like America's newest iteration of the forever forever war and the effects such violence and darkness has on the soul uh, of a nation that's already so steeped in blood, and again, an idealistic and an optimistic man in a Jeremy Saulnier movie has to die, because um, no good deed goes unpunished in one of that man's movies, especially the crime of helping people. I think you kind of nailed it in terms of, I think if they maybe just had Jeffrey Wright as a character but shifted focus to James Badgedale because he's this ordinary person, I think it would ground the movie a little bit because it's, what's a bit weird about Hold the Dark is that because everyone is so strange that you feel strange watching it because you can't really identify with anybody. And if you just had, if you had one, one sane person in this very strange world, I think the movie would just hit a lot harder. It would be great. Yeah, yeah, I agree, yeah. Um, do we talk about standoff at Sparrow Creek? Yeah. I'm gonna need a baseline. How tall are you? Go fuck yourself. How much do you weigh? Hard. Did you do it, Morris? Really fucking hard. Where were you before this? At my job. Which is? At school. Grading papers. I'm... I'm sorry, why are you asking me questions that you already know the answer to? Where are you from? Michigan, originally. How tall are you? Five three. When's the last time you measured yourself? Miss Wilson's class. When's your birthday? What's your favorite color? Can you see color? Did you do it? Where were you before this? I was at the range. What time did you get there? I don't know, four thirty maybe. I didn't look at the clock. Well, why didn't you return my text? I didn't have my phone. Uh-huh. Does anybody in this militia know that you're a cop? I don't know. After a reported shooting at a police funeral, reclusive ex-cop Gannon, Pepper James Badgedale, comes to think the killer belongs to the same militia he joined after quitting the force. Knowing the police would be closing in on him, Gannon quarantines his fellow militiamen, who are all played by these great character actors, you know, Chris Mulvey, Gene Jones, Kiki, Gene Jones um, from No Country for Old Men, we were just talking about him recently. Um, they all gather in this remote lumber mill, and there Gannon sets about a series of these uh, grueling interrogations intent on, like, ferreting out the killer and before any further bloodshed, and yeah, what do you think of Standoff at Sparrow Creek? I liked it. Um, I think it's one of the one of those real good character actor movies where everyone has like great dialogue to chew on, and there's a lot of back and forth sparring, kind of verbal sparring. Um, I was, I don't want to say I was disappointed because I did really like the movie, and like I was very physically affected by it. Like I, I remember um, I had my arms kind of like crossed, uh, and by the end of the movie, I was just like, my sides were sore because I was digging my fingers into myself. 
Yeah. Uh, that was how tense it was. Um, but I will say I did kind of want that tension to kind of release into this very explosive gun battle at the end, which it it almost does, but doesn't, if you get me. And uh, the ending doesn't seem doesn't quite have the last stand vibe I wanted out of it. But um, other than that, great, no no problems with it. As you heard in the intro, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts. There's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network. Here's a taster of one. Once upon a time, Fireside is the Irish storytelling podcast. Every week we breathe new life into old stories from folklore and mythology, from the mysterious landing of the old Celtic gods, to the epic wars fought by Cúchulainn and Queen Maeve, right down to the petty squabbles between headstrong mortals and roguish fairies. We already have a huge collection available with a new episode every Wednesday. This is not just a podcast for folklore fiends, but for anyone who enjoys a good story. And who doesn't love a good story? My name is Kevin C. Olhan, and I am your host and your fireside bard. Wherever you are in the world, you can always join me by the fireside. I know that fates are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff Shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events and lots more. We here at I Know That Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc. All for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus fat per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. It feels a lot more violent than it is for something that... Uh, or maybe it's just the, the threat of violence hanging over the movie. Yeah, I guess. and I think the dialogue is so evocative mm-hmm. as well. Like, it really cuts. There's that scene where they're... Um, when they all gather first in the lumber mill and the character played by Patrick Fish Pfizer. What's that actor's name? You know, the guy from Mulholland Drive. Uh, he's the, the teacher. The glasses? Yeah, the guy with the glasses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, yeah. He, you know, he shows up and they're like, did the guy who shot up the funeral, did he kill himself after? And they're like, what difference does that make? And he's like, well, most mass shooters realize how badly they fucked up. And then they realize the solution to that feeling is in their hands. Yeah. Which is like an awful line, but you're just like, ooh. Yeah, um, yeah I just think this is like, uh, it's the debut from Henry Durham. And um, it's a great calling card movie. Um, I think in a way that's similar to Tarantino's, you know, Reservoir Dogs. Like, just traps all these great actors in one location and... You know, while that setting was probably chosen out of necessity or for budgetary reasons, I think it turns it into an advantage because it doesn't feel stagey. You know, it just it feels tense and claustrophobic. It actually helps to build the paranoia the movie's fueled on because even like the fact that all the militiamen they're they're worried their mobiles will be tracked, so they all they know from the outside world is you know these ham radio transmissions. And you know, you watch um, the scenes of uh, Fischler's character. 
you know, like he's learning with horror of what's supposedly happening on the outside of the slumber mill. And it's yeah. almost like I imagine the people listening to the Orson Welles War of the Worlds, you know, transmission. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of, it's, it has that feel. And um, yeah, as I said, like the, the movie feels so fresh. I think particularly in its first half, you have a, a just a very tiny premise. You know, these mass shootings and uh, militias, you know, you have this group of actors who, you know, rarely get to lead movies like playing characters who rarely get to be the main characters in movies and the dialogue is so evocative as i said like that story happy anderson tells about his daughter you know the monologue gene jones yeah. about the concrete pour like it, it's also weird like, seeing jerry brudos from mindhunter do that monologue as well oh yeah yeah he's a he's a really good actor yeah everyone yeah. in the everyone in this movie we could do <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> the movie, it, as I said, like transcends its confines. It feels cinematic. Um, I do think it, it slightly, as it goes on, succumbs to the cliches. It subverts in its first half, and I, I, I kind of don't. I get the twist ending, but it feels a little far fetched to me. Uh, cause, yeah, because it felt so great yeah. originally. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I think on Dale, he's you know he's playing this former undercover ex cop who's very good at adopting to and like switching between different personas in these interrogation scenes in order to make a connection and get the answers he wants from these militiamen he's interrogating which is just a great showcase for an actor because these mind games and you know when he's interviewing happy anderson's character like he starts off at first trying to be really casual and friendly and funny before gradually like getting more intense and like putting the screws on him and trying to like slip him up like get him off his game then when he's interviewing the character played by robert aramayo who you know they, they think he's a mute so he, when he's doing this he's like very matter of fact and blunt and is trying to spook him but once it's revealed he's actually this very erudite well read and like egocentric young man who he, Gannon has to you know shift his method I think he even says at one point like I'm gonna have to ask you a few more questions because I'm now dealing with a completely different human being it's <laughs> just a really funny line but uh, I think like over that scene like we see him try multiple different approaches and it's only when he stoops to Aramayo's level and delivers this very dark and sullen and intense monologue about why he's turned his back on the world where he recounts the story of why he left the force that he gets what he wants and uh, although the you know there's a twist that comes with Aramayo's character uh, but on top of that there's, but then there's also the brian garrity character who dale's character ganon is closer with and he seems a little bit more genuine with and then there are other moments where his facade seems to slip and he loses cool but overall i don't think we ever really learn what makes him tick yeah i feel like this uh, ganon dale's character is a bit more of an empty shell than the others an empty um, man if you will <laughs> an empty man if you will a tulpa even um, <laughs> yeah like he's never a suspect suspect and we don't really find all that much out about him other than why he quit being an undercover cop uh, and beyond the fact that he's a very shrewd interrogator with a chip on his shoulder when it comes to police corruption. Uh, but at the same time, it is easy to see him as a man like willing to abandon society rather than participate in it. I think I do like the ending because it kind of leaves him with a choice that we don't get to see the answer to if yes. there even is an answer to it. And it's kind of like... Is he ending this movie like a completely broken shell of a man, or is he? Has he? Is he going to rejoin found, life? Yeah, has he found like a new purpose, or an old purpose even thrust upon him again? And is he going to, you know, participate and uh, realize that participating in this world that he hates is the only thing he's actually good at? And I think that's that's what makes the movie interesting to me, um, and I think that's what kept what kept me from being like actually disappointed in. The fact that it didn't end in an all-guns-blazing shootout. Um, mm. I was like, ooh, this is... Socrates would love this movie. That kind yeah. of thing. It's really, really good. Even if we're... If we're... I feel like we're criticising it. It's just because... 
what it does so well that when it, it does slightly slip up, if you notice it, but it's really competent. Uh, yeah. I think I was, if I have a problem, not really with Dale, but with the character of Ganon is that because he's always shifting and we never quite get a handle on who he truly is, that when the movie builds to that final scene, which is, he's aiming for this big emotional moment for the character and Dale's got like one tear running down his cheek. I don't feel it as much as I'd like because the character is a bit of an enigma, even mm. if Dale is doing sterling work at the moment. But then, as you said, like that could be intentional because, you know, Ganon's this guy who spent his whole career going undercover, quit the force after a traumatic incident and joined this anti-cop militia, but also feels some lingering loyalty to the police, it seems. So I think in the same way that we don't have a handle on Ganon, I don't think Ganon himself does either. And yeah. Through the undercover work and trauma, I think he's lost a sense of himself. And I think while the movie is certainly gesturing towards that in its final moment that you mentioned where he has these two choices, um, I think that would hit a lot harder if we knew a little bit more about how Ganon actually feels about the militia. Like, maybe a bit more concrete info about how him and Garrity got involved in the militia just just something about his reaction yeah, yeah. to what ultimately happens to the militia played weirdly for me it kind of bumped me yeah it's weird because you have all these disparate personalities coming together like you know you have um, the teacher there's um, the ex-highway contractor who's responsible for the deaths of five people played by Gene Jones there's the psychopathic possible school shooter um, and there's the ex-Aryan brotherhood member and then there's Ganon himself, and it's like, how do, how does this happen? How do you all find this one kind of through line that you all agree on? Um, like, what? Make, yeah, what, that's what it. Make, what would bring a school teacher and a school shoot possible school shooter together? I mean, he obviously wouldn't know he was a former school shooter because he doesn't speak. What would bring a teacher and an ex-Aryan Brotherhood member together? You know? Yeah, exactly. But then again, like this happens, you know, which is sort <laughs> yeah, of that's like true. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose that's the. Yeah. endlessly complex nature of human psychology is that you know you can find um, brotherhood I guess with even the strangest people yeah but then it's just it's another great performance idea, and it's another I think in which he seems to embody this intelligent action man you know like like uh, the rock or jason statham would not work in this movie because like yeah yeah in this case it's it's not brute force it's it's good wits you know yeah yeah will we will we talk about the empty man we gotta Let's do go it. For it hey wait we gotta try it Try what? Calling the empty man. Who's the empty man? If you're on a bridge and you find a bottle, you blow into it and you think about the empty man. Oh, come on, Mandy. How old are you? Tell him the rest. On the first night, you hear him. And on the second night, you see him. And on the third night? Well, on the third night, he finds you. James Bagdale plays James LaSombra, an ex-cop haunted by the deaths of his wife and son a year previously. When his young neighbour Amanda Quayle, who's played by Sasha Frolova, disappears, James begins to investigate, soon discovering a cult dedicated to the worship of an ancient deity known as the Empty Man. So, this is it's a horror movie, first of all, um, with a very generic title like Slender Man or The Bye Bye Man or some shit like that, um, that is much, much more than I think initial reviews made it out to be. I think it's this movie that combines kind of like, you know, there's a bit of Jallo in there, there's uh, loads of psychological horror, there's some uh, kind of modern slasher vibes in there too, there's like a fucked up cosmic cult cosmic nightmare at one point, there's some A24 trauma core um, for you A24 heads there, There's a, it's kind of like a wannabe true detective movie. Kind of like The Ring. Blumhouse B-movie scares in there too, and it puts all these things, and it puts its own twist on all of these, on all of these 
things that's built itself out of essentially and to get this totally new very strange very good identity and I think yeah, like for instance the Jallo sequence is uh, a woman being stabbed repeatedly in the face by a black cloaked by the by the empty man uh, who is often represented by this black cloaked figure and um who looks quite scary i think uh, for yeah. considering how generic um the costume is um and it takes place entirely in a steam room so all you really see are kind of her face shrouded her face and shoulders shrouded in mist essentially so very white mist and his black the black shape of the empty man as he like plunges this scissors over and over again just below her right eye and which is already horrible to see and it would be horrible to see in a in a jalo movie um that's like written like neon green and sulfur yellow and blood red a goblin soundtrack like yeah, you know? yeah um, whereas with this it kind of like goes the complete opposite way you expect for, of, for something that has such intense kind of you know italian horror vibes whereas there's no color at all it's basically like it's either end of the scale it's black on one end of the camera and it's white on the other and it's it should send um shadow fans like you and me foaming at the mouth with rage but just because because it completely disregards all the all those conventions of like you know color insanely loud music and uh, bad dubbing and um just kind of puts its own spin in it uh, but it makes it really exciting and gruesome and gory in a way that i don't think i've seen since you know inferno or opera or blood red or suspiria or any of these things yeah it's what i love about the empty man is that there oftentimes when you hear about an intriguing horror movie and you're you're you know you're excited to see it like before it comes out and then it comes out and whether or not it's good or bad or not you often hear about what was excised by the studio and it's not just violence you know it can be that the the subject matter was too out there for audiences or the tone was too oppressive or dark or the movie mm. was too artsy or too long and they cut like 20 minutes out of it and the empty man is not that like it feels like everything was left in re- resulting yeah. <laughs> in a movie that is feels not quite like it even though it's riffing on all these like you know genres and things like i even think there's bits of true detective in there there's bits of like the parallax view like you know conspiracy theories from the 70s it's like kill list it's like the ring Candyman. it has it feels like all these mixed movies but it just puts all that stuff together in this like movie that does not feel compromised at all and um i think what it results in is just or something that's artistically whole you know and because yeah. of that it's it's not really like any other horror movie i've ever seen <laughs> i feel there's a lot of artistic horror movies that are artistically whole but just one yeah. where it was just this just looks like it was just unmessed with by the studio it was not noted to death yeah I which think is, that's is rare thing though because you really have to call your shot when you're kind of marketing a horror movie these days like it's either a blumhouse or blumhouse adjacent film or something more in line with hereditary or the babadook or something that a24 or neon produced or distributed even with very little in between like you know we don't see a, a whole lot of basically are no are almost no classical ghost stories anymore unless it's you're like looking at something mike flanagan made for netflix there's no creature features there's no vampires mummies or werewolves the lovecraft and poe adaptations are either very slim on the ground or just totally gone altogether and there hasn't been a really good i mean i mean like really good not it good stephen king adaptation in years and so i think it's important that the empty that a movie like the empty man uh, is recognized as something far weirder and more creative than it that than its pretty generic title makes it sound 
Yeah, and it, it's quite funny to me that the movie was the debut of David Pryor, whose IMDb is mostly made up of these behind-the-scenes documentaries on the making of David Fincher movies, like mm. Dragon Tattoo and Zodiac, which I actually think informs the look of The Empty Man. The color yeah. schemes and the shot compositions felt very Fincher to me. But also, Alien 3 is exactly what I'm talking about. Like, that's Fincher's debut, which he disowned, is what I mean about, like, compromised horror movies. And luckily for the end project, at least, like, the... Prior didn't have to face that. This is like, yeah. like it's wild to me that like upon its initial release, you know, prior to heading to like VOD, the reviews of the Empty Man were bad, and we're lumping it in with like throwaway, similarly titled movies, as you said, like Slender Man and Weber Man. The Empty Man is 137 minutes long, and <laughs> it begins with this nerve shredding 22 minute prologue set in the Himalayas in the 90s before yeah. transitioning to modern day America. An introduction that only adds to the Empty Man's main plotline at the very very end, <laughs> and is just an incredible moody short on its own like yeah yeah very true. um and like awful events are part and parcel of horror movies you know and whether we can explain them or not is kind of part of uh, what makes a horror movie enjoyable like uh, if you do it if you do it well enough then you know it'll be like oh this was explained to me and i enjoyed it i had a good ride along the way and if you don't explain it you know in a good enough way then you'll think it's a better movie than any of those movies that explain things to you um as 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 they go along and it's like like there's a character played by detective villiers is his name of the movie he's played by ron canada who's uh, kind of a large a large black man who uh, is um, kind of well known for playing um cops and judges and people like that and he says like he's talking about all these horrible crimes it's like, the he, best line of the movie he's seen the James Vachdale has found the teenage Amanda's friends, the teenagers that like summoned the Empty Man or whatever, and they've all hung themselves under this bridge. Bridge is also a big point of symbolism in this movie, but I can I'll get into that in a thesis uh, a couple of years from now. Um, and the detective basically he's talking about that. There's teen, the teenage suicides. He's talking about like this woman that stuck her baby in a microwave. This man that put out his own eyes uh, in the area as well, and he's like, it's inexplicable. We can't light up the cosmos. And like, few films can distill why such awful crimes and events are often so hard to explain. And The Empty Man just manages to do it in a single line. Yeah, we can indict the cosmos. Like can indict movie. the cosmos, that's it, yeah. Yeah, yeah just on Dale, um, I read an interview with Pryor who said he cast him because he loved Rubicon, uh, the acclaimed but short-lived series which Dale starred in, which was also about a conspiracy. And he said, a lot of that show hinges on just how interesting he was to watch Doing Nothing. I was waving the James Badgedale flag from the very beginning. And while I think Doing Nothing is a bit of a simplification, I do get what he means because it, it's hard to know why. Maybe it's because he's got such a distinct face, or maybe because he's a bit more of an everyman. But I find Dale is very interesting to watch seemingly doing uninteresting things like the intro to standoff at Sparrow Creek where he's just alone in his cabin and hears the gunfire or he's installing like special military cameras to like a convoy inspectoral so I think casting him as this archetypal detective character just automatically grounds it and makes it feel more real on top of that, I think he manages to I'm curious what you think of this, he manages to imbue La Sombra, the character, with this sort of wry sense of humour almost like he's making, he's parodying a kind of the dark detective figure. Like, there's that eighty scene in the restaurant when he's alone and he uses the birthday voucher. Um, and the waiters... Oh, yeah, the tequila, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the waiters come out and sing happy birthday and he looks so mortified. Yeah, it looks <laughs> the, They're like, happy birthday. 
customer. <laughs> or, yeah. or there's that there's that terrifying scene when um, he's watching the cult members do some weird stuff in the forest, and they spot him, and they start repeating his movements all in unison, and he's like, "You yeah, know," and he just yeah, like pegs him. This. Yeah. <laughs> and as he's driving away in a really pitch high pitch voice, he's like, "What the fuck was that?" <laughs> and it, and it's, it's it feels so true, but also funny in a way that just adds to the terror. Like it doesn't undercut the moment. It's it's more like a roller coaster. You're kind of laughing, but you're freaked yeah, out. Yeah. There's the bit where he's at the Pontifex Institute, which is the official name for the cult of the Empty Man in the movie, and it's run by uh, a guy called what's his name? Arthur Parsons, who's played by Stephen Root, and he's filling out these forms. But the forms, other than the saying like, um, "Oh, I have an interest in my health and well-being," they they say other things like the brain can itch, or if science says the sky is blue, it is more than likely red, or until a civilization has fallen, it has not yet served its purpose. And he's just like, he just goes up to the girl at the desk. He's like, "What is this?" <laughs> Yeah, what I also think is great about Dale in this perform in this you know, role is that like he, I think he expertly tracks his character's mental disintegration, and it's almost totally in his delivery of the line, "I grew up in San Francisco," <laughs> because in that scene, as you mentioned, like he goes up to the woman and. Um, He's asking, like, what's up with this? And she's like, that's your first step on a journey to discovering your deepest. And he cuts her off and he's like, yeah, yeah, I get all that. I grew up in San Francisco. And it's really funny. And then, like, within, like, ten minutes later, he meets Stephen Root's cult character after the cult's talk. And he says to Root, for a second there, I thought you were going to say namaste. And he's like, I can if you like. And he's like, please, please, I grew up in San Francisco. And it's funny and makes sense in context, but it sticks out a little because he just said it to someone else. And it's, it's yeah. a little odd. It's a bit of a reach. Mm. And then, however, by the third time he says it and he's threatening Aramayo cult figure character and he looks sick and the empty man is in his head and he says a sans context in a slightly less sure way like i'm from san francisco and he like he's reaffirming it to himself and uh, yeah. i think it's just a very clever way of setting up the the, the big reveal of the movie i want we uh, we want spoilers people should go watch it and it's actually coming to disney plus on the 9th of july so <laughs> because it's it? it was a it was a 20th century fox movie and then disney bought fox i think that's why it got delayed holy fuck that's it's a, that's, this is that's wild. so strange yeah right I, no, I know it's a 20th century Fox movie but it just sounds so bizarre to send it to Disney Plus <laughs> but um, hopefully more people will watch it and um, I'm just I'm fascinated by it I'm fascinated by what it all means you know what, what the movie's actually saying because there's all this yeah. like pseudo philosophical things about repetition and about like I think it's sort of about how just sort of evil reverberates through time like there's little things like in that opening sequence they have to they blow into like this like it's like a wooden instrument but then later yeah. the kids are blowing into the bottles then as you mentioned there's all the symbolism of bridges and stuff and it's uh, I, I I don't know what it all means I have to say but um, no, it's interesting but, but I, I love I love the I just love it's like Prometheus or Alien Covenant I just love sinking myself into the world of those of those movies like a warm bath or something like that it's just yeah. I wouldn't call it a comfort movie but it's something I, I could see myself returning to over and over again absolutely just to find more details because even the first time noticing it like there's that scene where he he goes into the, the Pontifex Institute and I think on a frame on the wall you can see the bridge that is the bridge from the first scene in the Himalayas oh wow there's like easter eggs and stuff like mm. you you, I mean, you can lose your mind in the empty man <laughs> yeah yeah and it's, um, it's it's interesting we thought we mentioned like alien 3 or prometheus because there's the there's the totem they see at the start which is just built out of multiple skeletons because that the massive skull and it just looks like something h or geiger would have would have made years ago absolutely yeah man what a movie yeah is that is that all have we we hit everything about down i think so yeah 
rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from, you know, email I know that facepod at gmail.com if you'd like to get in touch with the show. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to Shining for editing for running our socials. Andrew, where can people find more of your work? You can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it. You can check me out at the Headstuff film section, check me at joe.ie. And if you haven't yet, check out I Know That Face. We just released a special bonus episode uh, comprising of an interview I did with uh, First Cow's star, Orion Lee, and he was a gent, and that movie's fantastic, so please have a listen. See you there, Cinephiles. Bye-bye. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.